going to attempt to cover, I think, probably a record for me in terms of numbers of verses uh, in an epistle, uh, because we've really got one section here, but it's 16 verses. Uh, and so we're going to try to talk about this, uh, the, several things that, uh, that need to be dealt with within the church there at Ephesus. Uh, and in chapter 5, what Paul does is he gives us uh, advice, not us, he gives Timothy advice, but we can take some advice from that. Uh, in meeting the needs of really three specific groups, um, and we're going to deal with the first two of them today. The first is general practice um, for the church for members who differ in age and in gender and how they should be dealt with. Uh, the second, and what will take up most of our time, is the care for widows, which is a, a notable portion of church members then, a notable portion of church members now. So there's things there. Now, there will be things culturally uh, in dealing with widows that is not the same as what we deal with now, uh, but I think there's some good practical application in both, in, in both ways. So Paul wants the action of Timothy and the church toward these various groups to to be a witness to the population there in Ephesus. Remember, it's a very pagan city. It's a very pagan place. And so he says we need to be above reproach in how we deal with people and how we care for people and how we serve people. Part of that has to do with good stewardship. Part of that has to do with, with, uh, with, the, with the love of Christ. Uh, but proper behavior toward all of these groups that we're going to be talking about Demand things like respect and compassion and, and giving of, of need financially when it's, when it's needed. So I still don't see my slides yet, so I'm going to keep talking. Um, my outline is kind of like this. The first two verses, verses 1 and 2, are uh, the family dynamics. How, how Timothy is supposed to relate to different age groups and gender groups within the church. Then again, verses 3 through 10 talk about what Paul calls widows indeed, real widows, uh, you know, genuine widows, verses 3 through 10. And then he's going to deal with younger widows, 11 through 16. Now, when we talk about younger widows, um, certainly that's an occurrence that happens today. That, that does befall people, uh, but it was common in those days. You know, that, that because they didn't have the medical technology that we have. And so there were, there were, there were situations where a, a good number of women might have been widowed at a young age, even as early as 20s or 30s, and that, that would have happened. And so provisions and guidelines need to be there for that. So let's start with verses 1 and 2. It says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. If you remember back in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul referred to the church as God's household. And now he's building on that same idea by using household language, family language, to describe the church. There's some Jewish roots to this in the diaspora, in the synagogues, uh, the Jewish synagogues around the empire. Um, uh, older men were often called the fathers of the synagogue. Older women were often called the mothers of the synagogue. So we're taking that same idea and moving it into, uh, into the church. This was also an understanding that was established by Jesus. Uh, you'll remember in Mark chapter 3, uh, when Jesus' family comes to get him, they think him mad, and they come to take him back home, and they, they come in and say, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside. Do you remember that episode? And verse 32 of Mark 3 says, A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? What do we got? 
We need that screen with like the technical difficulties thing that you used to see on the television. Okay? They're working on it, so we will do our best without it until it comes up. Um, back to verse 33. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And, and Paul's going to take that reality from Jesus and put it into standard practice here. Again, we need to understand the dynamics of what's going on. Paul is talking to Timothy. He's saying, this is what you need to do as a pastor. And as we talked about uh, in previous weeks, Timothy is younger than his elders. He is younger than most of his elders. And so he needs to avoid any perceived disrespect. I mean, that's, that's something that's an issue with all men, by the way. Uh, another thing we talk about in marital counseling is if, there, if, if your husband is upset, he probably feels disrespected. And if your wife is upset, she probably feels unloved. That's kind of the language we speak in. And so when we talk about that, the age dynamics, especially in a society that honors age and wisdom, we should still do that. We do that in, in, in certain circles. We don't do that across the board anymore. Um, but that, that, that has to be avoided. We can't have that disrespect. And at the same time, he wants to make clear that respect is a two-way street. Right? Because he's been pushing it throughout this letter. Timothy is here under my authority, apostolic authority. Don't let him look down on you because of your youthfulness. Be strong. Lead this congregation. And, and so while the specific responsibilities might be different on each end of that relationship, there's a shared accountability there. Right? And so certainly this advice is applicable to the, the entire church. But again, Paul is giving Timothy particular guidance here as a pastor and how to deal with the congregation. And again, I would argue that this letter makes clear that, that, that Timothy is the recognized leader here at the, at the church, and, and, and so he's giving him advice in order to lead well. So we move on to the next, uh, or we move into the text. Do not sh- sharply rebuke an older man. That, the older man, that word is presbuteros. It just means elder. It's the same word that's used to describe the church office of elder. In this context, it clearly isn't referring to that. It's, clear, it's referring to elder men, those that are older men of the congregation. And Paul's advice to Timothy is do not sharply rebuke an older man. That word is very interesting. It's epiplesso. It's uh, the only time it's used in all of Scripture, but it's an easy one to break up because it's a compound word. Epi means on, and pleso means to smite or to strike. Okay? So when it says sharply rebuke, this isn't even, hey, you should probably change this behavior. This is a verbal assault. This is upbraiding probably publicly. Right? And what he's saying is, don't drag a, an older gentleman in front of the crowd and, and, and upbraid him in front of the church. That's not the way to handle this. It's not a simple disagreement. It's, it's a harshness that comes with this. <clears throat> and the family picture is pretty effective here. Right? If you think about this idea, would a son be allowed to disrespect his father like that? Well, probably wouldn't go over very well, would it? That would, that would be a problem. And, and so he's not allowed to do it in the church either. Can't do it in the home, can't do it in the church. And, and, and sometimes we have to be stern with our children, right, in love to get the point across. Uh, the implication here is, as well is, as it is in all of Scripture, a public rebuke is always the last resort. That things need to be held, handled privately unless it's the last resort. Especially, and that's a real problem, especially if disrespect is perceived or involved. I think all Paul is saying is that an approach like that, 
with the older men in your congregation is not going to work well. <laughs> That's not the way you should be doing it. And, and so I read one commentary, and the guy was talking about, you know, Timothy has not done this much, so perhaps he, he really kind of thought through all his words, and he wrote them up, and then he would really kind of deliver them with gusto when he came to admonish a brother, and it, and it might have been over the top sometimes. But there must be respect for age within the household of God, not for age's sake, but for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the family. Then it says, rather appeal to him as a father. So don't sharply rebuke him. Appeal to him is the alternative. Parakaleo. We've seen this word before. And this is the same word that we saw in in earlier chapters that meant exhort or encourage. So this is a much different way to deal with people. And, and, And really, Timothy has to deal with difficult people at this church. And so Paul is saying, be discerning in how you interact with them. Be discerning in how you approach these different dynamics. And now, he's not saying don't admonish older church members. He's saying make sure when you do this, you do it biblically. That, there, there's a difference there. And, 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 you know, that's Timothy's calling. That's his responsibility. So again, Paul says appeal to them. This, again, the exhort, the encourage, it's tied to preaching sometimes. It's, tri- it's tied to calling men in love to repentance and right thinking. It doesn't mean the sin isn't pointed out. doesn't mean the sin isn't rebuked, but it does mean that it should be spoken in love and in the appropriate spirit. He then says to appeal to younger men as brothers. Okay? And so don't be superior. Appeal to younger men as brothers. He's not to lord his authority over them. You know, it'd be one thing, it'd be pretty bad if Timothy is, if Paul is telling Timothy, don't let them look down on you because of your youthfulness, and then Paul turn, and Timothy turns around and does the same thing to other younger guys. Okay, that would be hypocritical. You shouldn't do that. Don't, don't perpetuate a dysfunctional culture. Make the change. Let's make this do things biblically. So whatever the dynamic, I think we can all agree that respect is always a good starting point. And, and simply put, Paul is advising action based on sensible maturity. We handle each other maturely. If we're a family, we should treat each other as such. Then he moves in verse 2 to the female members of the congregation. Appeal to the older women as mothers. Now, I know appeal's not there, but it's it's the connection. Appeal to the older women as mothers and appeal to the younger women as sisters in all purity. Now, older women and younger women are simply the feminine forms of the masculine words that are in the previous verse. Okay? So the older men, the younger men, the older women, the younger women, same words throughout. It gives you this parallelism. It shows you all aspects of the family. And I think we can all agree on this. To sharply rebuke one's mother is kind of unthinkable. You know, And so, perhaps even more so than the father, wouldn't you say? And, and again, respect is paramount. No one who respects an older woman would dare upbraid her in public. And again, it comes back to that respect idea. Now, then the second one is appeal to the younger women as sisters. And now, in all honesty, the younger women in the church are a far more difficult ministry for the younger pastor than the older women are. Right? And that's why he ends this with a little bit of a tagline, in all purity. He doesn't tag that on to how he deals with the older women. He tags that down to how he deals with the younger woman. And so it's a difficult ministry context, right? Full transparency. It's a challenging ministry context. And so we come across certain practices that we've seen in the modern church, like, like the Billy Graham rule, right? Never meeting with, alone with a woman who is not your wife, okay? And that's a wise practice. It's a very wise practice for pastors to follow, at the same time, 
the younger women in the church also need shepherding. And so oftentimes we, 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 we throw the baby out with the bathwater and we don't put in systems where we can actually minister to the younger women in the church. And Paul says here you're supposed to act towards them as sisters, which again is a perfect illustration of what this is supposed to look like. That, that treat them as your sister. And so uh, think about this illustration. Um, in all purity, well, nobody wants to kiss your sister, right? They, that's why we don't like to tie. We like to win. Remember, that's, the, that's the metaphor that's there. Okay? Even men who sometimes objectify women would punch a dude's lights out if he did the same thing to his sister. Right, like this is the this is how you need to look at your sisters in Christ. That you need to respect them, and there are boundaries there, and there's that that the, the, the purity has to be maintained. Uh, this moral purity is hammered home. If the elder is to be above reproach, then this area must be under control. It can't even have an appearance of evil, right? It, because we, we've all heard situations where there was no evil, but there was an appearance, there was a perception. And perception is reality, and in today's culture, all it takes is an accusation. The power of the accusation is a powerful thing. And so he has to have the closest watch on his personal holiness when he deals with the younger women in his congregation. And purity there is hagneia. It's the same word from chapter 4, verse 12, that he said should characterize Timothy's life and his ministry. Again, moral purity and integrity of heart. Further, what we know about this church is that some younger women have already called, caused issues at this church in Ephesus. And we're going to read about those in, in verse 11. In, in 2 Timothy 3.6, Paul talks again of certain weak women weighed down with sins, laid, led on by various impulses. I think these are the same cross-section of young women. So while this is applicable in every situation, it's particularly pertinent in this church. This is something that needs to be watched. And perhaps he has fellow elders who have already transgressed this, and so he needs to be even doubly on guard. And purity has been thrown aside, and he can't allow that to happen. Now, what is Paul's intention here in these instructions in these first two verses? I would say to mold Timothy into a wiser leader who could deal individually with his flock, because that is the idea. The shepherd must deal both collectively and individually. Right? If one is lost, he goes and gets the one. And so there's this individual idea that has to be there. And the fact is, depending on the person you're dealing with, married, single, male, female, younger, older, middle-aged, there are different dynamics in every one of those situations. And so Paul is trying to give Timothy practical advice. He doesn't want Timothy to only be about admonitions. He can't be the, the rebuker all the time. If that's all he's doing, all he does is beat up the sheep. There has to be some love there. And then he wanted him to provide an example which other Ephesian Christians could imitate. How the pastor goes, how the elders go, or how the church goes. I mean, admonitions are necessary within the church family. But if all you ever deliver are rebukes, that's not discernment, it's just criticism. And and that's often laced with legalism and judgmentalism and a complete lack of love. So Paul was never afraid to call out sin when necessary, but at the same time, he was explicit that the Christian practice was to speak what? Truth in love. And he's giving Timothy the same advice here. Now, let's get into part two, as it were, starting in verse three. And I'm going to read verses three through ten. This is where we'll spend most of our time. Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents. For this is acceptable in the sight of God. 
Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. All right, a lot there. First of all, verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. We know if you read through your Old Testament that the care of widows has a very firm foundation there. It is all over the Old Testament. It's codified in the Mosaic Law. It's put on display quite real life uh, practically in the book of Ruth. Uh, You'll remember the issue concerning widows back in Acts chapter 6. That's why deacons were originally established because it was about the service to widows. And so if we talk about these care of widows rooted in the Old Testament, I'll give you a few verses. Exodus chapter 22, 22 and 23 says, Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Deuteronomy 10, 18 says, He defends, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Provisions made for widows are mentioned throughout Deuteronomy at least six times. The care of widows is mentioned, and you will find it throughout the Old Testament. It's in the prophets. Israel is decried for not caring for widows and orphans over and over again. So this is a centerpiece of Christian service and godly service. And in the Old Testament, Jewish service. It's also in the New Testament as well. Maybe you're thinking ahead. James 1, 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Jesus had a heart for widows. He raised the widow of Nain's son in Luke 7. He commends the widow and her two mites in Luke 21. Again, Acts 6, the whole beginning of the deacon service office comes down to the service to widows. Now, there was a Jewish system in place, and we talked about this a little bit in Acts, back in Acts chapter 6. But they had two things basically set up in the Jewish world. There are two Hebrew words. One was the kuppah and one was the tamwi. One was a weekly dole. So one, uh, if you got the kuppah, which means basket, that means that was a 14, enough money for 14 meals. So you knew these people well. They were part of the assembly and you provided for their, their needs. The, the tamwi was a daily dole for non-residents. It was a daily thing. If somebody was in need, you could provide them meals for the day, that kind of thing. And it seems like the Christian practice took up that same idea, that there was a more institutionalized idea of the people within the synagogue. There was also service outside the synagogue and outside the church. And you'll remember back in Acts 4.34, the testimony of the church was that there was not a needy person among them. The church took care of their own. That's part of the job of the church. But at the same time, because, and and we'll talk about this, you read these things from Paul and you're like, He seems kind of harsh sometimes. Paul's being kind of mean. He's saying we're going to give money to them, but not to them. And them, but not to them. Well, here's the fact of the matter. We're not the U.S. Treasury. We can't just print more money. (laughs) Our Treasury does, and we feel the effects of it. But the church has limited funds, right? And so in order to steward these limited funds well, 
there has to be some guidelines in place in who gets this. And, so, and there's, a, there's a good lesson for our current welfare state, right? Are there people out there that legitimately need support? Yes. But does everybody that's collecting a check need legitimate support? No. And what happens? Wasteful, 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 wasteful. And, and Paul says we can't do that. We have limited funds, so we have to be very, very selective. Not selective in a judgmental way, but selective in a, in a wise way in who gets handouts and, and who doesn't. So he says, honor widows who are widows indeed. And, and, and the, 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 the idea there is real widows. Uh, the real, now, you would say, well, aren't all widows real widows? Well, let me explain what Paul means by that. He's not saying a younger widow is not a widow, but he's talking about widows indeed. So what, what he means by that is there's a definition that he's got in his mind about widows that is more than just a woman who has lost her husband. It's, it's bigger than that, and that's what we need to, to nail down. Here's verse 4. He says, But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. The ones practicing piety are the children and the grandchildren here. And to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. All right, so families are supposed to care for their elderly members, right? Jesus points out in Matthew 15 that there were often sinful efforts to avoid that, that people were painting this in in a very religious light, but were avoiding caring for aging parents. I'll talk about that in just a little bit in Mark. But these teachings pick up on the ideal established in the Old Testament to protect the most vulnerable in your society. That's why it's always orphans and widows, fatherless and widows, because in that society, they were the most vulnerable. Even in pagan Rome, the care of the needy was usually painted as a religious responsibility. Now, in most other religions, caring for the poor is a way to get you favor with your God to get you into heaven. That's not the Christian idea. The Christian idea is because this is our service to the Lord and we take care of the least of these. The other religions do it to gain divine favor. The church is different. By the way, it also had an honorable tradition in the Greco-Roman world. But the reality was in the Greco-Roman world, in the secular world, a widow was always vulnerable. A widow was always vulnerable because she was usually not the direct heir of her husband who often got the inheritance the oldest son. So if your oldest son was a dirtbag, <laughs> you could be out on the street, right? So you were dependent on, now if your son did what he's supposed to do, you would be taken care of. But if, apparently that's not happening even within the church. And so Paul has to call out these sons and these grandsons and whoever it is that's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. There was a practice also in place to prevent that. Rome had a law in place in order to protect widows. And so this is the idea of what he says later on. If you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. Because even the pagans do this. Even the pagans understand you take care of your parents. And what they had was, and you've heard this term before, the dowry. The bride price is usually how it's described. Here's how one commentator describes it. This is how the Romans did it. The dowry, which was provided by the bride's father, always accompanied a woman to her marriage. It constituted an important legal aspect of marriage. In the event of a husband's death, the laws governing that dowry were clearly defined. A widow was cared for by the person in charge of that dowry. Two options were open to her. If she had children, she might remain in her deceased husband's home. 
And so that child, that, that son becomes the man of the house. He has now control of the estate and he provides for his mother. There she would be maintained. She would have a new lord, Kurios, master of the house, and it's probably her son. The other option is, if she had no children, if she was younger, she could return to her parents and she could take the bride price with her. In either case, there was a trust fund of sorts that provided for this woman if her husband were to pass away. And, and so whether the widows were Jew or Gentile, if she had children, it's likely that there were funds available to support her. The question was, were the children doing what they were supposed to be doing? And it seems that some were not, and Paul says he's calling them to task in this situation. And by the way, if we just look throughout history, <coughs> the care of aging parents was not just a matter of custom for most of human history. It's been a matter of law until recent times, even in Western society. Now, we still see this if you go, if you go east, if you go into Asian societies and African societies, this is still very much present. But in our Western evolution, we have become much more individual, individualistic, and some of this has fallen away. But this, this is the heart of the practice, and it's, it's, it's good to know. All right, Mark chapter 7. I want to turn over to Mark 7, because Jesus has to address a similar issue here. And you see this in the Jewish world. I'm going to have to start moving a little faster. <laughs> That's why I don't usually do 16 verses. All right, verse 9. You'll remember right before this, this was a conversation where the, the scribes and the Pharisees come up to uh, Jesus, and, and he says, why don't, your, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat bread? And Jesus calls them out on their, on their legalism. He says, you know, you, you guys do the same thing. And here's his example. In verse 9, he was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Legalism, anyone? For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban, that is to say given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. A lot of Jewish teachers, there were many rabbis that regarded the commandment to honor father and mother as the most important commandment in the law. I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying that was Jewish teaching. There, this was a big deal, it was supposed to be in the Jewish world. And, and Jewish interpreters included in this commandment providing for one's parents when they get older. This was part of the Jewish oral law. So the Pharisees taught that very thing. Parents are to be cared for in their old age. And what did they do? They weren't doing it. Okay? And I'll tell you, I'll explain what he's talking about. Tradition allowed in the Jewish world that items could be sacrificed or dedicated to the Lord or to the temple and that was called korban. You could put korban. So if I have a, you know, I have this sum of money, or I have this home, or I have goods, and I declare those things korban, what that means is when I die, those things will go to the service of the temple or be sold to be given proceeds to the temple. But what they were doing was they were declaring things korban, and they were leaving their parents without, and they were not necessarily saving it. They were living it up in the moment. 
and they were using it as an excuse, and people would go, well, why don't you sell that and give it? Nope, that's Corban. I can't. I'm sorry, I gave it to God. Can't, can't provide for my, uh, my parents with it. And so what Jesus is calling them out for is that they're hypocrites. You know, you say one thing, but you do another. You're violating your own beliefs. He's even saying your oral law is actually good on this one, but you don't follow it. You know, that's the problem. And so it's, their, it's not their religious theory. It's their hypocrisy and their failure to practice it. Their love for the law had led them, like I would say some modern Christians as well, to legal details that created loopholes so that they didn't have to totally follow the law. Remember, he talks about them in the Sermon on the Mount when they they would make pledges, they would swear by things. And he says, I don't care what you swear by, God created everything. Because if they swore to God, they could not break the vow, right? But if they swore by the temple or swore by the hair on their head or lack thereof, they would, they would swear those things. And they would go, well, and then they could break it and go, well, I didn't swear that to God, so I'm allowed to break the. See, they would always look for loopholes, and that's what he's calling them out for. And apparently, that some of the similar behavior is going on in Ephesus. He says there's three reasons why these children need to do this. One, they need to learn to practice piety. Piety is eusebeo. It's the verbal form of eusebeo. We have hit that many times in 1 Timothy. It's that one that's used eight times throughout the letter. It means godliness. It's the pursuit of godliness. They need to learn to practice godliness. So what is Paul doing? Equating godliness with the love and care of parents. It's two, he says they need to make some return to their parents. Some return, it's used only here in the New Testament. It's from a verb meaning to exchange. It refers to a a requital or a recompense, and it's almost like, you know what? Your parents poured their lives into you for all these years. You need to pay them back. (laughs) You owe them because you're still alive. You know, it's kind of that idea. And so you need to return what they've already given you. And then three, this is acceptable in the sight of God. It's the same word used in 2.3 in reference to God's call for us to pray for all men. This will be acceptable, pleasing to God. And so serving one's parents is described in similar terminology as our need to pray. Boy, you'd think that'd be an integral thing. And so he's, he's really hammering this. Every Christian's ultimate goal should be to live a life pleasing to the Lord. That's part of being a good and faithful servant. And so he's giving kind of a preemptive strike to reform the hearts of claiming, people claiming Christ, these children and grandchildren, part of the church family, And so he's basically saying in terms of these widows, before we start writing checks, let's see if people do what they're supposed to be doing. Let's call on them to do what they're supposed to do first. It's good stewardship. It's good preaching all tied up into one. And it adheres to to both both Old Testament teaching and Jesus' teaching. All right, now he gives us the definition further of a widow indeed in verse 5. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. A widow indeed, here's her circumstance, she has been left alone. No family, no one there to support her, none of these children or grandchildren that were mentioned in the previous verse. And her mindset is this, she has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. So no relatives to support her, no source of income, no source of encouragement, no source of, of, of spiritual health or anything there, and, but she's fixed her hope on God and continues in prayer. That, 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 by the way, that fixed her hope on God is in the perfect tense. It's settled. It's continuous. This is what characterizes her. Since she has no one else, she has learned to depend on God. That's what's happened, and it's enough. 
And to steal a Pauline phrase, she prays without ceasing. And the prayer of a righteous widow availeth much. I think that's what he's saying. Same two words that we saw in chapter 2, verse 1. Entreaties and prayers that he used to describe the prayer life of a faithful and a mature believer. Exhibit A, by the way, and I'll move a little faster. Uh, Luke chapter 2. Do you remember when they take the young child Christ to the temple and they meet a woman named Anna? Anna is that she was a prophetess, and right, but it says she was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then she was a widow to the age of 84. It says she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. That's, that's exhibit A for this widow indeed. That was Anna. So back to Ephesus. Widows who qualified for church support were those who financially qualified through destitution and spiritually qualified through godliness. That's the requirement. Then he gives the ugly alternative to that. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. So the widow who abandons herself to pleasure and comfort is in complete contrast with the godly widow who prays and seeks God. Physically alive but spiritually dead. That wanton pleasure line is only used one other time in Scripture, James 5.5, 5, when James is condemning those greedy and, and, and terrible rich. And he says, you've lived luxur- luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. So a woman who does not honor the Lord should not be regularly supported by the church. That's what he says, which I think raises one question. You know, uh, if you're like me, you drive around the city and you see guys on the side of the road with signs asking for donations. Does Paul, is Paul saying you can't ever help an unbeliever? Well, no, he's not saying you can't help an unbeliever. Of course we can. But they can't be on the regular dole of the church because you can't encourage lifestyles that are antithetical to Christ. And so the, the church must direct limited resources to where it's most needed, where it will be handled to the glory of God. And so Paul says, let's do some due diligence here. Verse 7, he says, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. The they in that verse are the widows. The widows were to receive the instructions of verse 5 so they wouldn't do the evil behavior of verse 6. And again, in verses 11 through 15, which we'll get to next, it's clear that the young widows that are causing issues in the church were not heeding this advice. To be considered widows indeed, their character also needed to be above reproach. Think how many different groups we've now covered within the church that are called to be above reproach. (laughs) We're about to cover just about everybody now, all the way across the board. That's almost as if the whole church needs to be pursuing godliness. Verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, a reprimand for these unfaithful family members. Provide is to consider in advance. It's, it's to look out beforehand. And here's the fact. If the Lord doesn't take us home early, a lot of us will get old. Okay? And so provisions need to be made, especially by the family. Especially if the, in these days where there's probably still living under the same roof. Right? This idea of spreading out wasn't the, wasn't the case then. Paul's might, might be indicating here that there was uh, some self-centered greed. The families wanted to keep the money for themselves. I mean, we are going to get in chapter 6 about the love of money being roots of all evil, you know, all kinds of evil. And so uh, honor your father and mother. That's a commandment we've seen found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, Ephesians 6, chapter, two, or verse, chapter 6, verse 2. And again, even the pagans would shake their heads at this kind of neglect. So anyone who does not provide such care, in other words, anybody who does less than an unbeliever would do, is worse than an unbeliever. They have denied the faith. 
He writes similar words to Titus in Crete when he talks about these people that deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. The failure of Christians to care for their own loved ones is a more flagrant fault than the same trait would be in an unbeliever. If an unbeliever did it, you'd go, of course they did. They're, they're pagans, they're wicked, they're selfish. But when a Christian does it, you now reflect poorly on Christ. And it may be that you don't have true faith. Christians have Christ's example to love, uh, and unbelievers don't have that. We have no excuse if they're in the church not to love, not to do these things. And, and that added incentive to obedience makes the failure of Christians to do it a more obvious flaw. All right, here we really get some details. Verse 9. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. Specific requirements. And again, I believe that when Paul says widows indeed, he is, what I mentioned earlier, I think he's referring to women who have embraced that station of life that they have committed to be single for the rest of their lives. Okay, that, that, that's the idea, that they don't plan to remarry and that they're dedicated to serving the Lord. This became a practice later in church history. There were orders of widows who served in the church, and, and, and I think that probably gave way to things like nuns and things like that. Well, that's, that's an entirely different thing, but this, this, this is not that organized. But, but th- that's the idea. I mean, at the beginning of the second century, Ignatius sent a greeting to the virgins who are called widows in Smyrna, and Polycarp wrote to the Philippians that the widows must think soberly about the faith of the Lord and pray unceasingly for everyone and stay away from all evil. All that to say, I don't want us to read this as like a quid pro quo thing. If you come and serve the church, we'll give you money for food. No, that's not what it is. That's not it. As if the widows are paid for their service. These women have no opportunity for employment. We're living in an ancient society where, where th- that's not a possibility. They have no family, and there's probably no new husband coming to save the day. Therefore, the church should provide for them. And what is he saying here? Their prayers are vitally important, that they are doing important work for the church when they are committed to praying for the church. And, and, and these widows are undoubtedly servants. So let's look at the prerequisites. Not less than 60 years old. Why 60? Well, it doesn't imply that a poor or disabled widow under 60 had to wait until she turned 60 to get any kind of assistance. It's it's true that that women under this age could normally be expected to do one of two things. One, possibly remarry, which Paul's going to cover. And two, perhaps do some kind of work to support themselves. Think Ruth gleaning in the fields, right? She provides for her mother-in-law to do that. After this age, a woman would normally not remarry. In the Jewish mind, 60 was the figure for the beginning of old age. I didn't say it. The Jewish authorities said it. Don't be offended. So if someone in Scripture is described as being advanced in years, Zechariah and Elizabeth and and Luke or, or Anna, that means it's safe to assume that they're at least 60. At that point, I know you're, if you're 60, you don't feel advanced in years. I'm just telling you what, the, what that terminology is. He says she needs to be the wife of one man. I think that's the parallel to chapter 3, verse 2 and verse 12. Faithful to one's husband, a one-man woman. An elder is to be a one-woman man. These widows are to be a one-man woman. We know it's not a prohibition of a second marriage because when we get to verse 14, he's going to encourage young widows to remarry. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he'll say the same thing. 
He says she is to have a reputation for good works. And, and, and those are real observable fruit, service to the church. And he uses some examples here. Bringing up children. Not that a childless widow would be ineligible, but that if she has children that have grown up, then she has raised children, we can say, oh, look, we've seen her in this service. Hospitality to strangers, that would be Christian missionaries, that would be traveling people through the, through the area. Washing feet, could be literal, <laughs> you know, that would have happened much in that day, but it's also a, an all-encompassing idea of humble service to other believers. And then assisting those in distress, most likely the sick and the hungry, perhaps those who have been persecuted and have been sent to prison. All of those things would be under that idea. Remember Jesus says, you visited me in prison? It's this idea. So every good work, this isn't an exhaustive list, it's a representative list. He's saying that widows should be characterized by good works. We should see fruit in their lives. It covers all the bases. Her life should be characterized by discernible good works. All right, 15 minutes. Uh, Verse 11. Let me turn back to Timothy. I'm still in Mark. Now we get to the younger widows. But refuse to put younger widows on the list, for when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married, thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. So before we get into this verse, let's be clear about what Paul is not saying, that younger widows will never get any help. He's not saying that. There would be a provision for needy younger widows as well in certain circumstances, but as a general rule, Paul says this is what younger widows should be doing. Younger widows should be not be put on that permanent list. And when I mean that permanent list, it's what I mentioned earlier. Someone who has embraced the singleness of widowhood, and they're committed to that. Now, Anna, in that story in Luke, has done that probably from her 20s. That's a rare occurrence. That doesn't usually happen. But he's talking about in this idea, once you, be, once you declare, I pledge, that's what he talked about, pledge to become a widow, I am pledging my life in service to the church. And so here's, here's the quick way to talk about it. Uh, if she's 25, she's probably going to want to be remarried. And if she's always looking for a husband, and I don't mean that in a bad way, I just mean that in pursuing a husband, she's not going to be able to be, do the widow's job, which is totally devoted to the church. And so that's, that's, his, that's his basic argument that he's got going on here. He says when they feel sensual desires and disregard of Christ, they want to get married. When he says sensual there, he doesn't mean, that's not, you know, when we hear sensual, we kind of think, oh, that's icky. It's not, what it, it's not that. It's, there's a desire to be with uh, someone, to have a spouse. They want to get married and thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. They promised something, they were going to serve, but they were never committed. And he says, and that's a problem. So in eagerness to marry, the widow's concern might race ahead of their commitment to Christ. And if that gets way too far ahead of the commitment of Christ, they may be willing to marry an unbeliever. Because there might be comfort there. There might be security there. There might be stability there. To be declared a widow indeed at a young age was a commitment to lifetime service. One cannot be devoted to singleness and service while looking for the next ticket out of that singleness and service, if that makes sense. So a regular dispensation of assistance from the church has to be reserved for those who desperately need it. And and it's a spiritual commitment. And if the desire is to be with a husband, again, Paul calls them sensual here, are still raging, it's better that she marry. That's what he says in Corinthians. 
right? Singleness would be great. If you can be single, that's great. You can serve the Lord. You can be like I am, but better to marry than to burn. Don't, don't do that if you're not called to it. It's not something for all of us. He'll talk about the proper way to remarry in verse 14. Okay, I'll skip over 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians 7 is where you want to go to hear more about that. Second reason, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to, mess, to mention. So if they are able, and yet uh, able to work, able to do some support, able to be married again, and yet they're supported by the church, they are freed up to do things they probably shouldn't be doing. If I don't have to go to work and I can sit home and collect a check, well, then that promotes the opportunity for sin, doesn't it? Free time, not always a good thing. Idle hands of the devil's playthings, as it were. There's an important, I think, lesson here for government handouts. (laughs) Perhaps government funding should be reserved for people in need indeed. But that, that, that ship has sailed, right? The toothpaste is out of the tube. There's no putting it back in. But that's where we are. One commentator described these women uh, who were taking advantage of the system. He says they became professional time wasters and were disputing the spiritual peace of the community. He says they were gossips. This is the only time this word appears in the entire New Testament. Fularis is the word. It literally means to create bubbles and bubble over. Because what's inside of a bubble? Nothing. (laughs) It's just meaningless bubbling over, running off at the mouth. And then he says that they are busybodies. Periergos is the word. It's sometimes, it's only used one other time, and it's used in Acts 19.19, and it's connected to occult practices. So, so they, they can, it's not just that busybody idea. We kind of chuckle at it, right? Busybody, they're out here, you know, running their mouth and da 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 But it could be more than that. They could be getting into things that they shouldn't be getting into. It could be more occult kind of stuff. Now, certainly we would say, Older widows are certainly prone to the same thing. It's not as if only younger widows are prey to this, but the young widows seem to be in Ephesus very vulnerable. They were a target of the false teachers, and the false teachers have gained ground there. And so he says, we've got to deal with this now. So I would sum up Paul's teachings in both 1 Corinthians 7 and 1 Timothy 5 by saying that they both stress a common ideal, that to serve Christ undividedly while dealing with sensual desires is a challenge. And I think you see that in the church scandals of the Catholic Church and things like that. It is not, we're not meant to do, if you're not called to that, that's a dangerous thing to try to do in your own strength. I think it's why marriage is the basic requirement for elders. More clearly than in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that, that some can best serve God by marrying. <laughs> that it's more healthy for you to be married and serve God than to try to do this on your own. Verse 14, therefore... I want younger widows to get married. Now, is this a contradiction? Because in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul said, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Verse 40, he says, In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, i.e. unmarried. So does Paul contradict himself? Are there different rules for Ephesus and Corinth? Certainly not. Paul expressed a personal preference for singleness. At the same time, he also acknowledged that each person has his or her own grace gift from God, whether to marry or not to marry, that it's necessary to be realistic about sexual desires, and that the truth is that a single person can be more devoted to the Lord, but that takes grace. All right, as I said in the previous lesson, Paul understands that marriage is the norm, and that singleness is not a calling for all, so he doesn't push his preference onto everyone. 
especially those who are younger, and so he advises them to be married. Again, this is especially important in Ephesus, where younger widows are targeted by these false teachers. The false teachers are not going into solid homes with husbands and wives. There's, there's stability there. There's protection there. They're picking off the people that are unprotected, and these widows are vulnerable, and so he says a strong marriage is the best defense to this. He says, I want them to get married and bear children and keep house and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. He says, I want them to become wives and mothers and managers of the homes. Right? Don't get offended by keep house. Okay? That's not sweeping the floor. This is Proverbs 31 stuff. This is managing the household. Uh, it's not just cooking and cleaning. This is, this is managing a house. It requires time and commitment. It, require, it, it might involve children. And, and so it, it, if, if you're committed to Christ in your family, there's not much time to get involved in gossip and busybodying. <laughs> that, 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 there, that if, and I, I would just say this overall, busyness is a good thing. America in general tries to avoid busyness. You know, we want to retire as soon as possible and go sit on the beach or play on the golf course every day. Nothing wrong with sitting on the beach, nothing wrong with playing golf. But if that's all you ever do, <laughs> that's not how we're, how we're designed. Work was there before the fall. We are designed to work. And I would just, a full schedule is a good thing. We should go to bed tired at night. <laughs> that's how we should be. And I would say, I, my personal example, when I played college basketball, I would say I was a much better student in season than I was out of season. Because when I was in season, all right, I got, a, I, got, I got weights at 5.30, I got practice at 7, I've got this, I've got individual workout here, I've got classes here, here, and here. I had to make a schedule. I had to, to manage my time. I had to be places. I had to get things done. Once the season was over, we had like a month where we were kind of off. Worst school month of the year. Because I, I lived in a dorm and, and I was right beside a nine-hole golf course, speaking of golf. <laughs> I got better at golf that semester than I did any other semester I was in school, but I was much lazier that semester than any other time because I had free time, and I, oh, I got plenty of time to do that. I'll do that later. But when you have things to do, it makes you, makes you buckle down. It makes you do that, and, and when you do that, you're not giving Satan an inch. You, you're committed to what's there. You prioritize. Unfortunately, in Ephesus, it's already happened to some people, and, and it could be full apostasy. At the very least, it's Christians being influenced by a carnal lifestyle, <clears throat> and these false teachers are part of that. So after this common sense counsel to the younger widows and, and to Timothy about them, Paul reverts back to another category. So verse 16 is rather interesting, but he insists now for the third time. He did it in, chap in verse 3 and 4. He did it in verse 8, that only those who are truly widows are to be maintained by the church and not those who have family to look after him. And now he gives us one final example, and this is a unique thing, cultural as it were, but it says, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them and the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. What is a dependent widow? What's, what's the situation going on here? Why is Paul singling out only women believers for this advice at this point in the letter? Well, there are two basic views on this. <clears throat> One is that Paul is aiming a rebuke at younger women, uh, either widowed or married to an unbeliever perhaps, who were neglecting the care of a widowed mother or grandmother. In other words, that would be kind of like, be like Ruth, you know, like Ruth cared for Naomi and, and all that. Um, she had nothing, and yet she supported her mother-in-law. Or a second possibility, and I think this is more likely because of the nature of Ephesus, because of the nature of the Greco-Roman world. 
Paul may have been thinking of a wealthy Christian woman. We've talked about this a little bit in this letter. I I think there's some of this in James as well, those members of the church who have are more well-to-do. And and, and the fact is that there were wealthy Christian women. Think Lydia and her, uh, her purple dye industry. If you're selling purple dye, you're making plenty of money. That's big money product right there. That's special stuff. And that these women could care for needy widows who are in their household. In the Greco-Roman world, uh, some women were well enough to well, well enough uh, taken care of or, or provided for financially to become patrons, and they would have social dependence. They would care for other people. Uh, that could include blood relatives. They might have servants. They might have slaves. They might have slaves who have become freed men and women who still live with them in their household. Uh, they would they would have clients. Those kinds of things. And so by requiring financially secure Christians to fulfill their responsibility to family members, Paul says, not only your family members, but anyone who is under your care. If someone is in your home and you're not providing for them, or someone has been in your home, and they're, they're close to you and you have means, then you are to help them. And why? So that the church can really focus on those who are in the greatest need. Again, it comes back to stewardship, that we are all to be generous and we're all to give out uh, of what the Lord has blessed us with. And whatever the scenario, time and commitment to serve widows in the church family is in view. He says the church is going to do their best to serve the widows that are in great need in the church. But it's not just the church administration's job. It's every member of the church. First in your family, and then if you still have means, to reach out beyond that and to serve those who are in need. And, and, and the widows just happen to be the ones who are in the greatest need in this time period. That, that they don't have, those that are widows indeed, literally have no other uh, answer to this but the church and their family. And, and the benefit is really great because if the church is being generous, then it's, it frees up the church to use its limited funds to preach the gospel, to provide for those who are truly in need. And a second benefit that Paul doesn't mention here would be that a woman like that, or any woman in the church for that matter, who is able to, could do something that men are really going to struggle to do in the church, which is care for aging and needy widows. That is a much easier ministry for a woman to do than it is for a man to do. And so it frees that up. It's not just financial. It's actually practical in how we can impact each other's lives. So a necessary service in the church is the service to widows, and that serves throughout the lives of the sheep. Right? Like we, it, when, when you're younger, you can do this. As you get older, you do this. As you get much older, you're going to be the one taken care of. So repay what was done for you, and, and, and it's this, this great cycle of, of Christian love. All right, I have two minutes. Did I miss anything in there? <laughs> I know that was 16 verses. Anything unclear in that with, the, with that that, we can, that I can answer before we end up? Yeah, Jan. That there are that there uh, so in terms of widowhood in the Mosaic Law, that there are specific laws within uh, the Mosaic Law that says, for example, don't pick up the gleanings on the edge of your field because you need to leave those for for the widows. Um, there are certain things that says, well, if there is a widow in your in your group, this is what you are to do. So there are specific practices. So there are condemnations of not, don't neglect or mistreat the widows, but there are also specific things that take this portion of this and give to the widows and provide for the widows. And so it's, there, it's not just, 
we wish you would do this. It's this is God's law. We're supposed to be providing. Yeah, so there are specific examples in there of all that. Yeah, if you, if you do a word search on widow, you'll find a lot of those, those ideas throughout the, the law. Anything else? Well, I think eventually, I think that's where 16 kind of brings in the whole church. But I think 8 is specifically, especially coming off the previous verses, this is your own family. If you, if you can't provide for the ones that, are, that were under your own roof, then you're worse than an unbeliever. Because even the pagans do that. Yeah. But certainly that admonition has larger implications when you talk about the church's household. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, the fact is most people can't help every household. (laughs) But if we all are doing those things, then households get served. Yeah. All right. Anything else? All right, I'm right at six. We made it through with no slides. I apologize for that. Um, They were the best tonight. You would have loved them. They were so good. No. Um, but we, we went back to the old days before we had PowerPoint. We survived, all right? So, but I'm sure we can get the slides up if you need them later and all that. But we'll, uh, so thank you for your patience on that tonight. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the admonition that you give us to serve, to love, uh, to deal with one another with compassion, with respect, um, to use what you've given us, uh, for the benefit of others, to put others first, uh, to, to, preach the gospel uh, to the unbelieving world by pursuing godliness. You enable that, Lord. You define that. You give us the faith and the, and the drive to do that. But uh, we want to proclaim your name. We want uh, Jesus to be known, and we want to give you the glory for it. Bless us and keep us as we go, Lord. Thank you for our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.